So I'm not a big proponent of Disney films, okay? But if I had to pick a modern favorite, it would be The, the Incredibles. And I think it's just the way the family, there's a lot of realism. They argue, they fight, they, they get stuck, they get lost. and then. But in one part, they go through a lot of hard stuff. And then there's one scene where they pull together. They're all using their different gifts and abilities to conquer the evil villain. And they rid the universe of one villain and it, everything is going super well. And the little, the little second son, his name is Dash, he throws himself on the back seat and he says, I love our family. And I've had one of those Sundays just after our morning and then just thinking through some times we were able to spend with some of you over the holidays and in personal meetings and whatnot. I just today feel like throwing my arms back and say I love our church family. Really thankful for you. Super excited about this series we have coming up as we jump into the book of Nehemiah. As we get started, I want us to imagine a group of people. I'm going to describe them for you. These people were once admired and revered for their morality and their piety and their dedication. But they drifted. Apathy, dismissive of generational wisdom, sensual allure of culture discontent in spirit, insecure in person, they began negotiating truth one principle at a time. One modern singer calls it a slow fade. They traded truth for the fog that now envelops them. Life as they know it has become radically upended. Right is wrong, and wrong is now right. And it has happened under their watch. Many of their old truth-heralding generations have passed away, and they must strain to hear the whispers of their ancient words. Their children haven't heard the truth woven into everyday life, and so they question or dismiss, dismiss the faith of their heritage. They've given their allegiance to government officials who now with heavy hands, control over far too many areas of their lives. They far too readily bob along in the flow of easy lies for convenience sake, only to hear the roar of the falls and then panically, panic furiously trying to paddle against an unbeaten, unbeatable current. In the face of of the looming catastrophe that they see before them, they question the God whose wisdom they spurned and can only see through warped lens his glory and his intentions, his love, and his faithfulness. All the God stuff they once clung to so fiercely is beginning to look further and further from reality. Yet rather than questioning themselves, they question the Lord They're desperately groping as a people for a political leader to bring them relief. And while once a powerful and influential people, they're weak, they're small, and they seem to be shrinking. Can you imagine a people like that? Where does a group of people in this place look for hope? 
to what do they look for motivation? And with so much to be redone or remade, where do they start? What direction do they even begin heading? You may be wondering even now, is Rob trying to make a point about an ancient people or is he talking about us? And the answer is, yeah, both. The space we find ourselves as a culture, but also as followers of Christ, as family, and as people, we have a lot in common with Israel at the time of Nehemiah. A lot. What we realize when we study these ancient texts is that there's nothing new under the sun. We think we're looking at an old book, 2,500 years old, and yet we don't have to look back that far to see the application. So we realize as we study these ancient people that we are finding ourselves on the pages of Scripture. Their story is our story. But a greater priority is this, that we realize that their God is our God. We find that his words to them are his words to us. It's not so important that we are able to pull out our little lesson for the day and how does this passage apply to me, as if the scriptures are about us. What is important is that we see God more clearly, that we behold his character and his actions and his attributes with greater awe and reverence, and then we place ourselves in the context of his truth, not him in the context of ours, We place ourselves in his truth. And then we joyfully bend ourselves to his forever wisdom. The God whose wisdom is exalted in the book of Nehemiah is the God we need to exalt and whose wisdom we need to heed. The truths that the Israelites find, the hope that they find in the book of Nehemiah, are the truths we need to respond to as Vine and Branch Community Church. So back to our question. Where does a group of people in a place like Israel has found themselves, or a place like we find ourselves, look for hope? To what do we look for motivation? How do we apply the truth of God to ourselves and ourselves to the truth of God. And with so many distractions and oppositions, where do we start? What direction do we head in first? Church, what we're going to find is just like Israel, all we need, the answer to these questions, is faith in the promises of God. Faith in the directives of our Heavenly Father. 
What they needed, we need. His word still stands for us today. So may we joyfully enter into it. Super excited about this series. We're in our series called Rebuilding, and I just remembered when I said that, I forgot to send Jordan our fancy little slide that usually goes up behind me, but you'll see it next week. So that'll be in here. But we're going to be in a series called Rebuilding in the book of Nehemiah. It's going to take us the better part of the first part of our year together. And as we jump in, it's really important that we load up our understanding with some necessary information. And so three things I want to cover today. One is the pattern to this point. What's been the pattern up to the point of the book of Nehemiah? What's been happening The second thing is the process of the returning exiles. We're going to get into this. The Israelites had been conquered, 586 B.C. Jerusalem was captured by Babylon. And now we're getting to the point in the book of Nehemiah where it's been 50 to 70 years. Now the exiles are returning to Jerusalem, and there's been a process for that. It's not everybody comes back at once. It's actually three returns and what the process is for the returning exiles And then lastly, who's this person, Nehemiah, and what's he doing? What's his job? Okay. So what we're going to do this week is just kind of load up on some context for the book. But even as we do that, there's some real helpful um, truths for us. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. Sound good? Okay. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. And here's what we know is true. All throughout history, your people have faced adversity, but overcome by relying on and submitting to your promises and to your directives. This is not your first rodeo. And if we listen to the ancient wisdom of your word, it can't, it's not ours either. And so we don't look as those who maybe even looked in this description of the people that I kind of laid out as we started without hope and wandering and lingering. Why? Because we have your promises. But sometimes for many of us, as all these things pile in us, in on us from the world around us, we can lose sight of you. And as we work through this book, may your truths come to the forefront of our minds and to our hearts, and may we be inspired all the more to follow you, to build your kingdom, to love the people around us, and to obey your commands joyfully and submit to you as our Heavenly Father. And so to that end, we need your help And so as we start into this study, Lord, we ask for your spirit to help us as we unpack to the best of our ability your word. Amen. So here's the pattern up to this point, up to Nehemiah. I'd written a lot about this pattern. a matter of fact, when I was writing my notes, I think I got into a page or two even just walking through where we started last year in Genesis, and I realized, oh man, 
we're not going to be able to pack all this in. But there's been a repeating pattern, so I kind of ditched that, and I just kind of wanted to talk to us a minute about this pattern that keeps repeating itself over and over. And it, it goes about it this way. These are in your notes. We see this right from Genesis 1, but then fairly shortly after, it's repeated again. But there's an invitation to dwell with God, to live with Him, to abide in relationship with Him. And not for nothing, there's a detailed manner in which this is to take place. God is not like this arbitrary parent that says, have a relationship with me, gives no directives, but then punishes you for stepping over invisible lines. It's not like that. He's extremely clear. And so he will say, I want to dwell with you. I want to live with you. Here's how we do that together. Here's the ways you do that. Here's the ways you don't do that. So the Lord invites us into relationship to dwell with him. The second part of that process is he always makes necessary provisions. The Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple. I want to dwell with you. I want my presence to be among you. Here's how we're going to do that. They, we blew it in the garden, revisits that. Now they build the tabernacle. They take the presence of the Lord with them as they're traveling through the wilderness. When they make it to the promised land, they build the temple, a more permanent structure where God says, as a representative structure, I will abide with you. I will live with you. And so he makes all the necessary provisions for people to dwell with him. But men and women fail either by their fear or their pride. It all boils down to that. But then there's a gracious response by God to that failure. He provides a return way. He he allows us to come back to him. It's called repentance. And then he, he graciously promises his presence renewed. Now we're back to the beginning. There's an invitation to dwell with him. And this is the pattern that we see over and over and over. So in the beginnings with Adam and Eve, and then the fall, and then Cain and Abel, and Abraham and Sarah, and Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers, and Moses and the Israelites, over and over it's repeated. And so now as we strap on our Bible, kind of like Dora the Explorer. I shouldn't even have said that, but we're, we're, we're putting on our backpacks ready to head in to our adventure of the book of Nehemiah. And as we crest the top of the hill, we're gaining a bird's eye view of the entire book. If you can imagine this with me, we're kind of looking over the entire book of Nehemiah, his landscape. And then before we start descending down into the details and kind of get lost in the woods, what I want us to see is that that pattern that I just described is repeated even in the book of Nehemiah. It's, it's repeated at the beginning of the book, in the middle multiple times, and even at the end. And it's this 
this thematic running of there's an invitation to dwell with God. He makes all the necessary provisions. Men and women fail by their fear and pride, but there's a gracious response to their failure. a, A return way is provided, and then a gracious promise is presented. And this has happened even in the book of Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, at the outset of the book, even Nehemiah sees this pattern. And he reflects on it as he talks with the Lord about this next season of his life. So look at Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now we're going to get into this next week. We're going to actually be in the first four verses of Nehemiah. But we're just going to be taking a peek. This is after, right after Nehemiah realizes the shape that his homeland is in. He's got a heart to do something about it, and he's talking with the Lord. Lord, I want to do something. And so he says this, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is remembering we have sinned and we are in this pot of hot soup because we have chosen to go our own way. But I'm recalling to you, Lord, do you remember the words? You remember your promise to Moses. That's our promise, your promise to us. And church, I would say in very similar vein, we can say in confidence the same things to the Lord. Lord, remember your promise to your people. And so this has been the pattern to the point of Nehemiah. And now he's appealing to the faithfulness of God in both his pattern, the ways that God has previously operated. Nehemiah has seen his history and the promises for the future. So that is the first part. That's, this, that's what's happened up to this point in the book of Nehemiah. Now here's the process of the returning exiles. So before we even get into the book of Nehemiah, we got to step back a little bit and include some of the context from the book of Ezra. It's another book right before Nehemiah in your Bibles. And many scholars believe that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one entire book. Some don't agree with that. There's a part in both Ezra and Nehemiah where they have lists. They're both the same exact list. Why would they compare, put the same list in any way? But regardless of the point, at minimum, they have been historically taken together. And one provides context for another. And if you want to understand the book of Ezra, you have to read the book of Nehemiah. And likewise, if we want to understand the book of Nehemiah, we have to understand some context from the book of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of like the dynamic duo of the minor prophet world. 
When I was a kid, there was these two little characters, a brother and sister. They were twins, the Wonder Twins. I don't know if you've ever seen. They put their hands together, Wonder Twin Powers Activate. Okay, well, Nehemiah and Ezra are like Wonder Twins. And they work together to do God's job. Like Marvel movies that focus on one superhero per movie. So, you know, you have Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hulk, you know, you have these movies about these individual superheroes, but oftentimes another superhero will make a cameo appearance in somebody else's movie, and then they work together to overcome evil. That's what we see with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so like the repeating pattern I just mentioned, Israel had been falling, failing over and over. And as predicted, as prophesied and resulting from their sin, in 586 BC, Jerusalem has been conquered by Babylon. And one commentary offers up this ancient Babylonian takeover like, a, like an ancient holocaust. Many of us have seen videos or read stories, the Ten Boom family or other things about Auschwitz or other concentration camps. And commentaries are saying what the Israelites experienced under Babylon was very similar to what the Jews experienced under Nazi Germany. Many of the Jews were killed or they've been taken captive and they're enslaved. They're literally working in slave camps and they've been relocated and hauled to a country neither, nearly 1,000 miles away from their homeland. The city of Jerusalem was left a desolate wasteland. The walls are pulled down and literally left open. The gates that once protected the city were burned and the temple was virtually bulldozed. This is the condition of the Israel people's family, um, city. It's 586 B.C. So by 539, about 50 years later, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And God begins to work into the heart of the Persian kings, both King Cyrus and King Artaxerxes. And he begins the process through these two godless men to start the process of invitation over again. He's going to invite. Then he's going to provide the means. And we start this process all over again. Because I'm not just giving us a history lesson. It's really important that we see this pattern of the Lord pursuing his people. And if you look, you won't have to look far in your life. You will see this very same pattern. But God even uses these godless kings to begin a march that only he could have done to bring his people back to himself. Take hope when you're struggling and lost. He comes to get you and he'll use whatever means necessary to do it. There's three key characters in this process of returning. The first one we find in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. It's a guy named Zerubbabel. Any of you pregnant mothers, you can take that up with thoughts of names for your newborn son. 
He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim of Judah, and thus he was a descendant of David. He was born during the Babylonian captivity. So during this ancient holocaust, Zerubbabel was born in a foreign city. But he must have heard generational stories because he had a passion for his people. And by the way, that's true with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Here they are. They've been hauled away to a godless country, and they still have a, they, a country that they never went back to yet. They were born in the Holocaust, remember, in the captivity. But they're longing for God to do something for their people. Why? Because their parents spoke generational truth to them, and they listened. Now, we're going to get into this more as, this, as the story goes over and over. And a matter of fact, somewhere in the middle, I'm going to take a break, and Ian's going to teach on a psalm that is all about passing on truth from one generation to the next. And what we're seeing right here in the book of Nehemiah, and this is going to continue to unpack itself, if that didn't happen, we don't have what we have here with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. But Zerubbabel is stirred by God through history provided by his ancestors. And he traveled to Judah after King Cyrus II allowed the captives to return to their homeland. And so he leads about 40,000 Israelites back to Jerusalem. And we talked about this a little bit when we were studying the book of Haggai a few years back. But Haggai actually refers to this whole process. And he begins the building of the temple. So he's the first key figure. He leads the first process back and begins the building of the temple. A lot of history there, but it's the temple building is stopped. It ceased for a number of years. And then comes the second key character, and that is Ezra. We find out about Ezra in, chap, in, in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. He was a scribe and a priest who was sent with both religious and political powers by the Persian king Artaxerxes to lead a second group of Jewish, Jewish exiles. He returns from, with this second wave of people at about 458 B.C. And if you're following these numbers, remember when we have, remember when we have the years, the period of silence, the intertestament period where God's not speaking at all, and we're getting awful close to that time period. You following me? Ezra returns to Jerusalem and he's expecting to find his city alive with the love of God. I mean, these people traveled almost a thousand miles to get back to their homeland. He can't wait to get back there themselves. There's 40,000 of them, he knows roughly, that are going to be there. We're expecting a party. He gets there. He, he walks up to the city. The walls are still broken down. The gates are still burned. There's rusty hing, hinges hanging from rocks that are broken and laying sideways. And then he gets in the temple still only half built. And he cannot believe what's happening. What has happened to my people? What has happened to their love for one another and for the Lord? And so God does an amazing work through uh, Ezra. He addresses sin he helps to rebuild the temple and he restores worship. And Ezra's goal, his life mission, was for himself 
and his friends, his, his national family, to live God's word. I don't want to just teach it to you. We need to live the word of God. And what's super exciting is now we get back, now we're starting to step into our third character, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to restart the building of the walls. Nehemiah shows up on the scene about 446. Again, the people are back through Zerubbabel. Ezra has helped to leave the second wave of people. He's helped to get the temple rebuilt like we learned in Haggai, and he has restored worship. But Nehemiah, a thousand miles away, finds out one of his brothers comes to visit that the gates of the city is still open. The walls are still torn down. And he has this glorious burden to show God's attributes to the world through his people, just like he promised. But his people are still vulnerable and they're shamed. And they're living in a a city with broken down walls and charred remnants of gates hanging by their hinges. And Ezra says, if you'll allow me, I want to fix that problem. And so that's how the book of Nehemiah starts. So again, we're kind of looking over some of the high spots in the book of Nehemiah. And here's some things that we're going to be seeing, (coughs) that we see the peaks of now, but we're going to be seeing as we venture down in, as we move through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to find that the God of the Israelites is the same eternal God that we worship and that we serve. And his plan for his people is still the same as it was then. We're going to find out that God, like any great parent, clearly lays out the benefits and expectations of obeying him and then follows through with both reward and consequence when his children don't. We're going to see the importance of generational faithfulness to God and communicating his truths from one generation to the next. And whether you're a parent or not, we all have that responsibility. You with me? If you're a single young person here, you have a responsibility to communicate God's truth to the next generation and help the parents do their job. We're going to see the necessity and power of a like-minded community of God's people working together uniquely and yet in unity. This is probably one of my favorite parts of the book that we're heading into. This idea that we all have a job to do. We ought not to be jealous over each other's job, but see our glorious part in the job. And see that in unity, when we do our job and other people are doing theirs, it's earth moving. It's kingdom building. It's true. We're also going to see that there is inevitable opposition to this kind of kingdom building. That there's a three-step forward, two-back in the work of God. And that difficulty or hardship should not cause it to cause us to revisit the foundations of our faith nor deconstruct it. You with me? 
Too often we think that if we enter into hardship, something must be wrong. Not true. We're going to see that faith unto action in God's promises leads to rest and peace and confidence and that disobedience in his plan leads to shame and difficulty. We'll see how the truth of God's word and the clear promotion of it, clarifying it, is central. It's central to organizing and orienting the hearts and the affections and the values and the minds and the actions of God's people. We have to organize ourselves around the authority of God's word. We're going to see that the confession and acknowledgement of sin, taking responsibility for sin as it is named in our lives, and then repenting, turning from our ways to God's ways, is absolutely essential for the health, not only of ourselves, but also of our community together. Repentance isn't just an individual thing, it's a community one. You with me? We're going to see that strong leadership and strong following exponentially increases kingdom work. We'll see that social reform grows out of individuals that are parts of families, that are connected to their community, who are in line with God's truth. It's that community that brings about social reform and justice to the poor and to the needy. We're also going to see the ease of spiritual drift. That as exciting as these things are and as clear as God's call can be, like Isaiah says, we all like sheep have a propensity to wander off in our own direction. And therefore, we're going to see the frustration of ministry and community living. Nehemiah is really honest about it. And finally, we're going to see the necessity of remaining faithful for long periods of time, doing mundane yet important things, working together in community, while we actively wait for God to fulfill his promises, which he will do. So that's the high view of the book of Nehemiah, and this book is packed. That's why we're taking so long to do it. It's packed with truth for us, Vine and Branch. So ultimately, I believe we're going to see this amazing amount of truths for us to learn, hope to be gained, vision to be had, clarity to our mission, repentance of sin, enthusiasm for the success of others rather than jealousy and self-pity. We're going to see a renewal for worship, caring for those in need, inspiration to our ministry opportunities as individuals and families, and may God help us to do that. Amen? And so by way of application, as we think, as we head into this book, I wanted to give us 
some things to think about. And in particular, I would like for us to really consider this pattern that we have seen over and over in Scripture that's going to repeat itself in the book of Nehemiah. And if we look, it's been repeated in our lives, and it's going to repeat itself again. And so for us, there's an invitation to dwell with the Lord. And I want you to think about, I want us to think about in what ways is God inviting you into relationship right now? As we head into this book, this book is going to be about God and for you and me. And one of the first things we're going to encounter is this invitation to relationship with him. And the question for us, church, is not just can we learn a good history lesson and feel good about the way Rob said it and go home. But God is inviting me to dwell with him in ways that I haven't before or ways that he's inviting me now and I'm resisting him for whatever reasons you got going on in your life or my life. In what ways is God inviting you to relationship that you're not experiencing right now? For some of you, you know immediately what that is. For those of you, I'm not so sure. I feel like I'm in a good place. Awesome. But begin praying about it. Lord, this is a pattern for you. You invite us into relationship and then graciously provide all the means by which we can have it. So what are these ways? And then are there any ways I've been resisting your provisions for me? the second point. You might say, he's made his provision for me in Christ. Awesome. But he's also making a provision for me in friends, and I'm kind of resisting that. Or through this experience or that, and he's providing for me, and I'm resisting that for some reason. I want to grow in that. Or you might say, I I never even knew that he made a provision for me in Christ. What does that mean? I want to know what that means, and you should talk to somebody about that who knows what that means. God has made an invitation to dwell with you, and he's made all necessary provisions. Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the Holy Spirit, community of believers, his word, and ultimately Christ our Lord. The third part of this pattern is that men and women fail by fear or pride. And I would ask us to consider what ways do you typically fail by fear or pride in response to God's invitation and provision? Consider that. And yet, he's gracious to that. He, is, he responds to our failure with love. How has he already responded to your failure? How has he already offered to help? He provides a way to return. Is there something you need to be repenting of and turning from? 
And again, he offers a gracious promise of his presence renewed in this process. And so for some of us, again, some of these answers might be super clear. Even this week as we study, you'll go, I know exactly what that is. For some of you, it'd be like, I'm not sure, but this one or that one or maybe this or that. But as we get into the study, I want to have an open heart for whatever God wants to teach me about himself and then about my relationship to him. So, Father, we thank you for your word and your glorious and constant invitation for us to dwell with you, to abide with you, to rest, to remain, to enter into fellowship, friendship with you. Lord, help us not to take this invitation and this entire pattern for granted. And as we even consider today your word and then consider moving through your word for the next several months, that we would anticipate joyful growing and changing in order to more deeply, fully abide with you. And so may we even consider this entry point into the book of Nehemiah as an entry point, again, into abiding with you. And so we thank you for your kindness, inviting us through Christ our King into fellowship with you. And we want to take full advantage of every part of it and for you to strip away everything that cannot belong in the presence of our relationship with you. So we thank you. We need your word for that. We need your spirit for that. And we also need each other for that. And so to that end, we ask you to hear us, respond to us according to your faithfulness, and that we pledge ourselves even now, whatever it takes, to grow into the truth that you have and will bring us for your glory and our joy. Amen.